Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 179 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, where if you go to their website now, link in the description below, you can sign up for their email list, and they will send you each week one free tune. They call it Treat of the Week. They also will be releasing a brand new release next week, and you can always check out the Acoustic Encounters podcast with Andy Barnes and the dog himself. So head on over to Acoustic Disc and also brought to you by Grace Design Preamps. Grace Design Preamps, if your favorite artist has to plug in their acoustic instrument, there's a really, really good chance that they are plugging in to a Grace Design Preamp. They sound incredible. I have the Felix 2 and I love mine. So please head over to Grace Design and check out what they have going on. I believe they have a new mic preamp as well. How's everybody doing? Hope everybody is doing well. I am uh, just recording this intro here with a Bell's Oberon. It's my first one of the spring. All my Michigan listeners probably understand if you drink the Bell's beer. Bell's Oberon is just one of those signs that spring is here and summer's around the corner. So excited to have one of these. I'm excited. I'm heading to, to New York City tomorrow to continue uh, doing some recording on the East Coast for this recording project that, again, I'm super excited to tell you all about, but I just want to get it a little bit further to completion. Four tracks done thus far, though, so I'm, I'm, I couldn't be happier. Couldn't be happier, and I, I think uh, mandolin players will love it. So I'm excited about that. Excited that we have my guests this week. Now, I have to give a warning, a heads up right now, that there's uh, a B word uh, used on this podcast a few times, and that B word is banjo. So we don't normally talk about banjos, but uh, Ben's got an incredible new album out. It's called Hidden Animals, and I got to meet him at IBMA. You'll hear about that, but he's super nice. And he also played in Old School Freight Train, which is a band that I really, really enjoyed, still enjoy. And um, he put out a duo album with uh, Pete Frostick, the uh, mandolin player from that. And they recorded an album with David Grisman and toured as his backing band. So some great stories about that and just some great musical advice that can be applied to our wonderful mandolin. So, all right, well, I'm going to get to the sponsors here because I have to get up early to catch a plane. Uh, so let's get into the sponsors, starting with Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass and old time and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. They have a great lineup of mandolin instructors. That's an understatement. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. From beginner to advanced jazz to shoro and Irish, you'll find it all in the Courses include high-quality video, multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com and download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs is back. Hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Again, much like Grace Design Preamps, there's a reason why you see some of your favorite acoustic acts using Ear Trumpet Labs microphones live on stage. 
Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins, designed and built in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much to Ellis Mandolins. Tone Slabs. Man, you need to follow Tone Slabs on the Instagram. Frank Sullivan, his partner, been posting some pretty cool video stuff lately. And uh, the, the pics are incredible. I love mine. I've got one sitting right here. 1.3 in the 08, the CJ Lewandowski shape. Uh, you need to check them out. Uh, Frank knows tone, and these picks are incredible. So go over to toneslabs.com and get yourself a slab of tone. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now, heading into their 51st year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Ben Krakauer. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. Follow me on the Facebook and the Instagram. And uh, you guys have yourselves a fantastic week and weekend. Cheers, everybody. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Ben Krakauer. Ben, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. And um, I'm excited to do this. this for one, I, sh- I should point out right off the get-go, Ben's got a brand new album out that is absolutely incredible called Hidden Animals, and we're going to talk about that. also got to work with one of um, my favorite mandolin players and I think one of maybe one of Ben's favorite musicians as well uh, oh yeah the dog David Grisman but um, I first off I got to meet you at IBMA and what a pleasure getting to meet you in person and get to talk with you um, it was really a, a cool connection man and uh, I appreciate you stopping by and saying hello yeah, it was great to finally meet you. I mean, I've been a fan of your show and, and I mentioned to you that like, you know, my brother who's a mandolin player is a big fan of the show and, and our dad who who sadly passed away um, a couple months ago. He also was a big fan of your show. So it was really fun to to meet you in person and reconnect with my buddy uh, Keith, who I hadn't seen for a while either. Yeah, Keith for Picky Fingers. And yeah. a, a, another funny thing that was so um, you played in a band called for people aren't familiar with you yet. Um, you played in a band called Old School Freight Train. And as we were just talking, that was just that just happened to be one of those albums. I had just gotten a mandolin and was just buying everything I could, you know, and that was back in the day where you could go to like, uh, you know, like Borders or Barnes and Noble and you could like scan an album and listen to a sample and then it would tell you 
other things like oh if you like mm-hmm. this you should check this out and and that old school freight train album was one of those and i fell in love with it immediately so much yeah so good and then i remember messaging you on myspace because you (laughs) and the mandolin player pete frostick put out uh, a duo album on it was mandolin and and banjo That's like one of those things where I'd go to a used store and always hope to find this album. And then when I mentioned it to you, you went and got me a copy of it at IBMA. It was so stoked. Well, yeah, because back in the day when you reached out to me, I guess that you know I probably had that box you know locked away in my you know my, <laughs> my you know childhood closet or something. But but yeah, when I saw you this time, I had some copies with me. So um, first off, let's start with the brand new release here, Hidden Animals. I am so floored by the the compositions and the and the the playing on it the fact that you have a drummer on there it has got this constant vibe through the entire thing that is just a really great listen Man, thanks so much. I mean, you know, th- th- that's just my my dream team of musicians on that album. Like, you know, the drummer who you mentioned, Nick Falk, is this just incredibly, um, he's extremely like creative, but he's such a, I think what sets him apart is he's such a sensitive musician. Like he really listens and like to have a drummer who listens like that is just like, I mean, that's obviously listening because we're musicians, like that's the whole thing. So yeah, he, he's just uh, so fun to play with and all those musicians. Um, yeah, a super fun album to make. And he's worked with, I mean, like even on the production side, like worked with uh, Molly Tuttle. Um, and then one of my favorite bands, the Wood Brothers, who I love. Yeah. And you can hear that in his drumming. I think I think he he brings that really cool kind of like a soulful feel, which you don't expect to necessarily hear um, when you think of this genre of acoustic music. Yeah, I mean, he like Nick, um, he he went to Berkeley and he went to the Thelonious Monk Institute for jazz. But then at some point he got really into, you know, he also plays Callheimer banjo. So at some point he got more into old time and he married Dory Freeman who, you know, her family's from Galax and he lives in Galax now. So he's really into the whole like old time thing as well. So 
coming, you know, being someone who's coming from being this virtuoso jazz musician with like a heart for like old time music. I mean, that's what an incredible drummer to connect with as a banjo player, you know? And you have a, another great, the whole lineup is great. Ella Jordan, who um, just, just joined mile 12. Yeah. 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 I mean, Ella is just unbelievable. Like she, um, man, oh man, I hope she records an album of like straight ahead jazz someday. Like she is like, I mean, she is like Lester Young on the fiddle, you know, I mean, not to put her in a box because she does. She's also like, she does so much really cool stuff. But yeah. What a cool, she's got such a cool, uh, voice and personality on that instrument yeah i wish i would have wrote down i i would there was a song and i forget what solo it was now it might have been the tidewater actually i think mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just remember some of the things she was playing on there i'm like whoa, whoa, wow yeah what is this totally so she so duncan wickle is also on the album and duncan they both play fiddle on that track but duncan plays cello on some of the albums so some of the album has, like Tidewater has these things where they trade, you know, I don't know what it is, they're trading eights or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's so fun to hear them. And, they, you know, they both like, I think they're both to some extent coming out of like the Daryl Anger lineage. So sometimes it's like, it can be a little hard to tell them apart sometimes, but they definitely have these really distinct voices that come through as well. And then the um, bass player. Dan Klingsberg. Yeah. And, and Dan, you know, I'm sure you've heard him on other recordings. Like he's, he's, um, you know, he's recorded with Ethan Satiwan and Julian Pinelli and kind of that, that crowd. So um, he's just, yeah, amazing bass player. I've, I've had a lot of fun working with him for the past, um, you know, past bunch of years. And your compositions, man, you are a fantastic writer. I mean, you know, it, instrumental, it's, there's so many styles of instrumental music in this genre, like new acoustic or, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole it and, and put a label on it. But I think that's probably the easiest way to uh, to really kind of talk about some of the newer stuff that's coming out. Because it doesn't really stick to, you know, there's some of my favorite albums are just straight up burner one, four, five, <laughs> you know, mandol oh, yeah. mandolin albums. But um, I also love albums that just take you to a whole nother world. And boy, this year has been a good year for that. <laughs> you know? I know all these amazing albums, one after another. I mean, uh, yeah, just in the past couple of days, I've been checking out like Ethan Satiwan's new album and Ethan Hawkins has this great album and Sammy Brahman from the Oldies. All these amazing albums coming out. Yeah, and and yours. Oh, thanks. Um, but yeah, I mean, talking about the compositional thing, like, you know, I think all of us nowadays, just with the access we have to different types of music, like we all have such like, or most of us anyway, have such vast um, like tastes and influences. And for me, the whole thing in writing is like, what are my favorite sounds and how do I make that music happen on my instrument and with people I would play with? Like, how could I, you know, how could I bring my favorite sounds into being, you know, that, that I'm capable of making on my instrument? So it is kind of like, just like you mentioned that term new acoustic. I mean, I know we're going to talk about Grisman and he was like a really important person with this stuff in the seventies, but I'm thinking about, I think Daryl Anger is the one who coined a new acoustic and all that Anger Marshall stuff. I mean, that they were doing in the eighties, like just bringing in all of their influences and kind of 
bringing it together on these, you know, mostly stringed instruments. Um, that's yeah. So that term new acoustic, I mean, I feel like it does kind of capture what a lot of us are doing, you know, just trying to capture the things we love on, on our own instruments with our own bands. And I think what's, what we have in common, well, you play banjo and I play mandolin, but the, uh, both our instruments tend to be pigeonholed into, right. you know, like, oh, it's, well, this is what you must play. And that's the beauty of your album, I think, is it's just like, as I'm listening to it, I'm just like, oh, wow, man, this is really inspiring to, to hear somebody who, again, plays an instrument that you, you think you've kind of got an idea of what it's going to be, and it's nothing like that for the in all the best ways. I mean, it's so beautiful. Well, thanks. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to spoil things. For, I don't want to spoil things for your listeners, but you were telling me about this cool project that you're working on. And like, we were both, we were kind of sharing that experience of like, when you, when you get people to agree on some dates, you know, it's just going to happen. So for me, you know, getting these musicians and booking the studio time, all of a sudden it's this opportunity of like, okay, I guess I'm going to start, <laughs> you know, continue writing tunes that represent the stuff that I'm into. And then, you know, you write tunes with that kind of approach and yet you end up getting a pretty, you know, you end up getting a lot of sounds that might not be the thing you would, that would automatically come out if you just kind of picked up the instrument without, you know, spending some time like writing for a project. What type of music did you listen to as you were growing up? Did you grow up in a, uh, uh, I mean, obviously your brother's a, a, a mandolin player and your father listened to the, listened to this podcast. So it seems like there must be some sort of bluegrassy roots, but how did you get into playing music? Yeah. So, um, I mean, Growing up, my brother was the musician. Like we grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, and there's that fife and drum corps. So my brother was like really, he really excelled playing fife in that. And I did that for a couple of years, but didn't take to it as much. And then he played guitar. So like I always had this older brother who's really into music. Um, but my parents, you know, they they like to like sing and stuff. But I would say, um, you know, I remember you and me were probably of a similar age. I remember like when 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 our family got a CD player, I remember what a big deal that was. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, I remember going to the store and, and picking out an album. You know, I got the George Michael Faith album. That was like my, <laughs> right. as, a, as, a, as a seven-year-old, I knew that song from TV and I love that clave rhythm. That's yeah. still like my favorite thing in music. I play the band, Scruggs style banjo. That clave thing is everywhere. But <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certain things we would listen to around the house. Like my dad got this, uh, Doc and Merle Watson album called down South, which had some great stuff on it. And they used to play so, the chieftains a little bit and, uh, like, uh, kind of blue album, Miles Davis. Like they were just like, and Pete Seeger, we grew up listening to Pete Seeger stuff. So I think like that stuff. And then, and then the other thing that you, you'll probably connect with is, you know, when you're in middle school or high school, joining those groups like BMG music, where you get buy get C 10 CDs for the price of one. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you join like five times, you know, and, and build up this collection. Yeah. So, so, so through that, you know, they always had kind of like the older catalog of classics. So, you know, I remember being in middle school and, and getting into Hendrick, getting all his stuff and, you know, some of that classic kind of stuff like Paul Simon, a lot of stuff that I still love. Um, and then like, yeah, that, that's, that's some of the stuff I guess. I, oh, and of course, I mean, you know, if we're talking about being a little kid, uh, <laughs> the Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff, parents <laughs> just don't understand. It was kind of like an early kids, like rap kind of album. Oh yeah. There's like a Freddy Krueger song on there. Like, so I used to like that a lot too. So, you know, stuff like that. I mean, you already hear all the giant influences on you, even as a young kid then coming from your family. I mean, you know, like I, I mean, my dad was a, a DJ when I was real young, but my dad was really into like Led Zeppelin and and Kiss, and so there was my dad. There was no Miles Davis being played, and, and I, you know, I had to discover that 
probably through the record club, <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the same sort of way. But you, you kind of had that kind of early, this, these wide influences that helped shape you, I think, huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, my dad, like he was, you know, he, he was an immigrant kid. Like he came to this country right before he was six. And I think he always kind of, I don't think he really felt like he really belonged so much. So I think as a result, like when he was kind of coming of age in the, you know, the sixties and seventies, he kind of like, I don't know if it was intentionally or not, but I think he wasn't listening to a lot of the music that was kind of of the day. So I think like, I don't know, like somehow like his dad, the thing that they connected on was listening to like crooners, like, like Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, stuff like that. And I think Miles Davis too fell in that category of something they both would appreciate. So for me, I almost had this like sense of like a familial tradition of like enjoying like that kind of like lyrical type of music or something. And then there's also this thing, um, uh, you know, cause my, my family, um, you know, grew up Jewish and like in, in Virginia, which is kind of like, <laughs> there weren't a lot of Jews around in, in Williamsburg, Virginia growing up in the eighties and nineties. But, um, that music, like that we would sing on like Friday nights and stuff that definitely made an imprint. And I know eventually we're going to get to talk about David Grisman, but I think one of the reasons why I connected so hard with his music is he wrote so much in minor keys and, you know, these certain modes that I would hear in that kind of some of the Jewish music that like, I didn't necessarily hear in the rest of my life. So that was another definitely like sort of familial kind of early musical influence as well. So then how did you pick up a banjo? How did the banjo come into your hands? Um, I guess um, listening, you know, being like 14 years old, 15 years old, hanging out with my friend after school playing video games and we'd put on records and, or, you know, put on CDs and, um, you know, listening to all that stuff I mentioned before he'd get from the BMG buy one you know get 10 free or whatever but <laughs> but also I think we had both had kind of uh we both had grown up on, on some of the Pete Seeger like kids stuff so I think listening to that stuff again along with the Doc Watson thing that my dad would listen to and I think I just kind of got the sound in my head of like there's this really cool sounding instrument called the banjo and I never really saw people play it but um, I wanted to play, I was in, my older brother played guitar and he was like improvising and I really wanted to improvise. That was, a, that was something I was into. And I kind of felt like, well, other people already played the guitar. Like, let me try out this banjo. And then ended up connecting with a great uh, teacher, Bill Gurley, who, who then kind of opened all kinds of doors for me. How long was it before you met up with like the old school Freight Train guys? Again, that album, for anybody who's, who's listening to this and hasn't checked that out, it's got a great variety of tunes. How many albums did you guys put out? We put out a few albums. Yeah, we did. Um, we put out maybe, I don't know, four or so albums. We did a, an album called Live in Ashland. We did The Run with Grisman. We did a self-titled one. And then we did a whole bunch of picking on albums. They, we would just get the gigs and we'd we'd record them as cheaply as we could and keep the rest. You know, So we did a bunch of those as well. <laughs> yeah, you did. I, you did the Wilco one, right? Yeah, we did Wilco and, and Coldplay, Ben Harper, a bunch of those ones. Yeah. The Live in Ashland one is pretty fun. I mean, we did that. That was the last one we made when I was still in the band. Um, and we did, we did like, well, you needn't on there. And we did some fun stuff on there. Um, but, um, but yeah, as far as meeting those guys. Um, so, like I said, I grew up in Williamsburg and Pete and Jesse, the mandolin player and guitar player from that band, they went to college in, in Williamsburg. So when I was like, I guess when I was still probably 16 or 17, 
I connected with Pete and we would play music uh, with this guy, John Cleary and my other friend, Evan Morse, like we, we play together. And then when I went off to college, I kind of fell in with some musicians in Charlottesville, but then Pete and Jesse connected and formed this band in Williamsburg. And then I, eventually we kind of like combined forces in, in Richmond, which is like the halfway point between Williamsburg and, and Charlottesville. Um, and then formed old school freight train. And I guess like, you know, maybe the summer after my first year of college. Oh, no kidding. And did you go to college? Were you going to college for music? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was going, it was just kind of like a liberal arts degree, but I was a music major. So I took all these music classes, but it wasn't like a conservatory setting. So like, you know, I never played a recital. I don't remember having to play juries or anything, but I, I took lessons, you know, that was cool. I took jazz improv lessons and jazz guitar lessons. Yeah, because you currently your job is assistant professor of music. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up, you know, with the circuitous thing. I did the old school thing for six years, and then and then you know play, did a bunch of playing with you know some different people, like the some of the people in the beaters. I did some playing with them, and then I went to grad school and kind of focused on the academic thing for a while, and then that's kind of how I ended up getting the job at a college. But what's been interesting is like since uh, since leaving academia and and getting into this teaching in a college setting it's been so clarifying to me just how much I love performing and writing music. So it's kind of like that, that whole grad school thing was almost like a detour. And now I'm, now I'm kind of back again in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So when you start old school freight train, do, do you guys decide to put a album out first by yourselves? Were you guys playing and were you touring at all? How did you guys finally decide to like, Hey, we can, we're, we're a really good band. <laughs> we should, put this, <laughs> we should record and play places. Well, I mean, it was, we started playing in 2000 and we played, we would do local gigs. Like we got, we played at this gig in Virginia beach, like four nights a week in the summer. And like, and my brother was on some, did that a lot of times as well. And, um, uh, like random kind of like cafes and, and bars and stuff in, in the, in the region. And then, uh, Daryl Moeller, the bass player went to college at App State and Boone. So, you know, eventually we were spreading out and playing in, in North Carolina and getting some festivals and stuff. So, I think um, it was just an exciting time, and I think I think it it felt pretty unique at that time. Like you know, like I said, very early two thousands, um, it felt really special to have a group of musicians where we'd play bluegrass together, but also play you know like covering Latin tunes by David Grisman or covering Stevie Wonder tunes or Randy Newman or whatever. Like it felt like a a really spe it was a really special opportunity to, to find a group of people who who was interested in, in playing that stuff and interested in working really hard to practice and 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 work that stuff up. So I think we were just kind of we were just all for it. Then how did you guys initially get connected with Chrisman? Because that's that's a whole a whole nother wild thing. I mean, the, the album Run is out on acoustic disc, which is you know Dog's big label, and is I'd love to hear how that whole thing happened. Yeah, I mean, that was a dream. Like uh, our manager at the time, Ann Kingston, who's someone I went to school with, um, she just, I don't know if it was on a whim or what, but reached out to Harriet Rose or, or, or I think Harriet Rose at, at Acoustic Disc and sent sent a demo or album or something. And, um, you know, Harriet is like, she, she's old friends with David. So she just sent it to him and he actually listened to it. And then they actually got back to us and, and essentially we're like, yeah, let's make a record. So we were just like, you know, we were floored. We couldn't believe it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that like going to uh to to make an album? Was he there for the entire making of the album? 
Yeah, it was a dream. I mean, he like he he produced it and we recorded it at his house because he had a studio in his house. This is when he was living in uh, I don't remember if it's Marin County or Petaluma in Petaluma, California, sort of the North Bay. Um, so yeah, like we were, you know, I think we were staying at a hotel, but we were we were doing all the rehearsing and recording at his house, and um, it was awesome. You know, just instruments on the walls, and he we already had our arrangements, so he kind of he didn't really um, he had a pretty light touch as far as like arrangements or material, but. Um, I can't remember if, if there might've been a couple of things he might've suggested, or I know there, there's a tune we did called Henry Brown. And I remember he had some cool arrangement ideas for that one. Um, and then he played mandolin on, on this, there's a jazz ballad called Eurydice that Nate Leith, the fiddle player wrote. Um, so yeah, it, it was a really cool experience. We did. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, you know, I don't think he had, I don't really know like what kind of prompted him to do this. Cause I don't think he had done this before. Um, I don't think he's done it since either, but basically he, he produced our album, um, put it out on his label and then toured with us where the thing was that we were the opening band and then for his set, we were his band. Whoa. So like that, that, that tour we did in 2005, it was like, David Grisman with Old School Freight Train, but we were kind of playing the whole night and it was like such a, it was so cool. Like he basically told us like, you know, for his set, we do all of his music, but we could just choose whatever of his music we wanted to learn. We'd play that. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, and we already probably played like, you know, maybe seven or eight or nine of his things. So we, you know, we learned more of his stuff and, and man, it was just such a blast. And we got to play, we got to play some really cool stages and meet some really cool people. Like, I remember we played at Sanders Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts on a bill with Alison Krauss and Richard Thompson. Um, I remember we played at um, at Old Town School of Folk and, and connected with um, uh, that amazing jazz mandolin player. Why am I spacing on his name right now? Don Sternberg? With Don Sternberg. Yeah, that was so cool. We connected with him in Chicago. And then we played at, we played at Town Hall in New York and Andy Statman and John Scholl came and sat in. And uh, it's like, and we played... Um, we played at the Grand Tarhi Festival with him. And I remember um, like Daryl Anger and Mike Marshall came and played on stage with us. And then I remember there's this jam of, I remember they were all playing. I didn't really know the tune at the time, but I remember they were all playing uh, Joy Spring, the Clifford Brown, like bebop tune. It was just super, um, it was just such a, such an exciting time. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> that is, yeah. that is wild. And then the funny thing about it too, is that this was like 2005. So, um, and, you know, we kept in 2006, we also we kept touring with him as the opening band. But by then it was like the quintet was the was the headliner. So we weren't we weren't his band, but we'd open and then we'd you know play on the encore or whatever. But um, but I remember in those years in 2005, 2006, this is also the time of like, you know, the kind of like early mandolin symposium and all these young kids just like shredding on the mandolin. So I remember anytime we we'd travel, we'd always meet all these young kids like, you know, like you know, Dominic Leslie and Jake Jolliffe and all these people. Um, so that was also really fun. Any words of wisdom from dog that stuck with you from, from playing with him or recording with him? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of th- a lot of things sort of by by example or by seeing his demonstration that made an impression. Um, I mean, I guess words of wisdom. I remember um, he he. I remember him talking about some some friend he had or some acquaintance who was like an investor guy, and he asked the guy about for like financial advice, and the guy told him like invest in what you know. So his interpretation of that was like, he basically bought these instruments, you know, <laughs> built up this amazing collection of instruments. And, you know, I think for him that quite literally has been a financial thing. Cause he can, you know, he can sell those instruments. They appreciate in value over the years, especially since he started recording before the, he started collecting before the price skyrocketed. But I think that idea of like, you know, invest in what, you know, I feel like for me, I've kind of taken that to be, you know, what do you know that's of value in your life? And like, what does it mean to invest in those things? So like, maybe it's like practice time where you're, you're blocking off some time in your schedule where you could be doing something else of value, but you're recognizing like, you know, practice being really important or or like any other kind of similar thing, or like maybe investing money on some gear where like, man, can I really afford this? But you know, it'll kind of take you to that next level if you have that gear at your disposal. So I think that that was kind of like maybe some words, words of wisdom from him for sure. What was it like to to sit in? So you're playing. First off, you're playing with Dog, which I would imagine you know you eventually you get comfortable with that. You've you know you you played with him, you've worked with him, you you build a, a comfort level. But then each one, you know, you're playing these shows, and all of a sudden you got Mike Marshall and Daryl Anger <laughs> jumping on stage with you. And you know what were some things that you might have learned that you picked up from playing with like these like sit in sessions where all of a sudden you're playing with these massive players and and how do you handle that? It was so cool. I mean, fortunately, I don't remember the chronology exactly, but I'm pretty sure I had already gotten to know Daryl and Mike from, they would play at the Prism Coffee House sometimes in Charlottesville. Like they, they've got that amazing album called At Home and On the Range. Um, and so that, a lot of that was actually recorded live at the Prism at a show that I'm pretty sure I was at. So like, I remember like Pete and I got to hang out with Daryl and Mike a couple of times and they were kind of like our model for that that duo album we made called wide open they thinking of all the grooves they had with just two musicians so i guess i'd gotten to know them a little bit already but um but yeah i mean it was just unbelievable like i remember i remember um i remember that gig the thing i mentioned in new york with with andy statman and john shoal and just kind of um just hearing the tone those guys get on their instruments just pretty amazing and just kind of being around that or be, being around someone who you can tell they've studied so deeply on certain musical traditions or certain musical things that you haven't even touched yet. There's something kind of awe-inspiring about that, you know? Um, like I remember with John Scholl, cause he, he was a, he was a guitar player who played in the Grisman Quintet, um, you know, at some points. And I remember he had this like real kind of like, kind of like an R and B kind of thing. And it was just really cool to hear that coming out of an acoustic guitar. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, playing with, I mentioned how like when we were opening for the Grisman Quintet, on the sort of in the two, in 2006, like, and we would come and sit in with them. I mean, what an amazing band that was like, uh, you know, George Marshall on drums at that point and Matt Eckel on flute. Um, so that was like, uh, Enrique Coria on guitar. Like, so all those, all those musicians was just pretty incredible to, to be around them and just try to kind of soak up and, and notice some of the things they were doing. When you, when you say, and I know now we're talking a little bit different because banjo and mandolin, but it's still similar. You know, you talk about these tones that players are getting on their instruments and inspiring you and, and maybe touching on things that you feel like you haven't even touched on. So how did you take that experience as, as just as a musician and go home and, and, and work on your tone? Because again, your I mean, your tone on this, this album, just beautiful. I mean, you have killer Thanks. tone. 
Man, thank you so much. I mean, that's that's kind of a thing I'm prioritizing right now, like just trying to keep on working on that tone thing. But but um, you know, I think th- those musicians like Dog, Mike Marshall, um, John Scholl, Andy Statman, I mean, they're all, all plectrum players. Like they all have just this like force that comes out of their instrument. You know, like I mean, for well, one they they all play loud. I guess I don't remember if John Scholl played as loud, but but Statman and Grisman and Mike Marshall definitely play loud and just have such a force and such a like a just a substantial tone they draw from their instruments. So I think like maybe the lesson of just playing with that level of conviction and also kind of like, you know, doing your homework. So you build up your craft to such a level that you just know exactly what you want to say. I mean, that's, I feel like that's the thing that we all, one of the things we all love about Grisman, like every note that guy plays, he just really, you know, he meant it. So I think that was definitely a big, a big lesson to absorb just being around them, just how solid and confident they were and how, how realized their artistic vision was, you know? Not only strong, but recognizable. I yeah. mean, you hear Grisman and you know it's Grisman. There's no doubt, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which is which is wild to think because, you know, we're all, we're, we, you talk about mandolin players, like we're all playing the same instrument, but there's those certain ones that just stand out. And you can tell Sam Bush and Grisman, you know, on any song, it could be pop radio. <laughs> and you'd be like, holy cow. Totally. It's so iconic. I mean, I remember, um, I don't know, you did you ever go to Merlefest back in like the early and mid 2000s? No, I wish. Um, I used to go to Merlefest because it wasn't wasn't too far from where I was living, and they they would have like whatever they would call it, mandolin madness. Maybe they just call it the mandolin workshop, and like you know there'd be all those mandolin players up on stage. Um, and um, I remember it was always so fun when Grisman was in the lineup because like um, you know the, that was like the time period where where Chris Thiele was just kind of like exploding everybody's brains. I mean he was just doing these things in the instrument just no one had ever heard before, and like that was always going to be a revelation to hear him play like any time. But I remember it was so fun to hear Grisman on those same lineups because Chris would do his thing, and then Dog would come in with like such a statement that would be minimalist in comparison, but just so impactful. And I just remember that was like always it was just the coolest thing to hear that you know. He's almost like it's almost it's like almost like BB Kingish in a way. I mean, you know what I mean? Like the always you'll see videos of like, you know, like guy like like John Mayer or something just like playing this incredible mind bending solo. And then you go over to and the BB King does it and you're just like it does it in a quarter of the notes, but it no less is impactful or mind blowing. Totally. And and you also and a lot of times with that type of playing, the the, the BB King example, the Grisman thing, it's like it might be an opening statement of just a couple notes and then there'll be a space. So it's like a statement and then it breathes and it's like, it's so impactful, you know, and that tone, I mean, it's so iconic too. I mean, you hear, you hear dog play like anytime and it calls to mind all the recordings you've, you've spent so much time listening to, you know, like, so it's, it's always fun. Were there any tunes that you in particular picked for tunes to play with dog when you guys got to, uh, which is so cool like just you guys just pick songs from my catalog <laughs> well, that's what yeah. we'll play <laughs> it's funny i was brainstorming before we met to try to remember what some of the ones we played were um i know we did pneumonia from the original album or at least i think we did that one and i'm guessing that that might have been one that i picked um but um we did a lot of his kind of like the his like 90s like latin compositions like um you know, like Chili Dog and um, we did Tico Tico, which of course he didn't write, but he recorded like stuff like that. Um, Tico Tico might've been the one that, that wasn't an original we played because, but um, man, it was, yeah, it was just so fun. 
Hey, I can't imagine how, how cool that is to to curate a set list of I just my mind is blown by the fact that he's just like, I yeah, just pick pick the songs. <laughs> I love it. You know, and it's it's so funny because actually like I think that in itself is kind of like maybe something that I'm trying to get behind now, like at this stage, like, you know, making these albums, like this album, of, this recent album that we were talking about before and, and another one that I made with similar group of musicians um, a couple of years ago, like I've kind of been thinking, like at first I was like, let me get this dream team together and make music that I can only make with those musicians. And I feel like now I'm kind of thinking more in the terms of like, let me, let me like, if I want to play a show somewhere, let me find musicians in that area who I'd love to play with and kind of let them decide which of my tunes they'd like to play. And that's kind of like exactly that Grisman. I'm not comparing myself to Grisman because obviously I'm nowhere, like I'm not near that stature of a musician, but like that thing of like having a catalog and then that you just, you, you like your catalog and then whoever you're playing with, like let them choose what stuff to do. That, that's, that, that's kind of a, that's sort of a fun model. When you're um when you're composing, I mean, obviously you can you can write, uh, you know, and you can be inspired by anything and, and write anything. But I really am impressed by your your compositions, and I was wondering maybe just some tips, um, you know, for players out there who want to maybe try to write their own thing that's a little bit outside the box as opposed to being, you know, a straightforward sort of fiddle tune. And not that there's I'm not I'm not poo pooing. I love them <laughs> fiddle tunes, <laughs> but you know, it 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 is it it, it is. A, a tougher to write songs that have more than traditional changes, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could talk all day about this, just like, just thinking like, like approaches to it. I mean, I think, um, I think, well, on the most practical level for me, the little voice memo thing on the, on the phone, like anytime I've got some little idea, just record a voice memo of it. And like, so that way, just like anytime it evolves a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, keep on documenting with voice memos. So I don't lose anything, but also keep up the momentum of keeping writing it. And with that, just like embracing that thing of like revision, like it's not going to, it's not done just because a draft is done, but like I'm going to keep on drafting and drafting and drafting until it gets to where I want it to sound. So like that would be one approach. I mean, I think another thing is um, like rhythm is, is one of these qualities in music that we can just get inspiration from like anywhere, you know, from anywhere. So like just noticing things in different types of music that I might hear. And if there's something cool happening rhythmically, like, you know, maybe when I get to the banjo, like figuring that, putting that into like a little banjo roll or, or some scale pattern using that rhythm, you know, that's like a great, and then kind of like, put that rhythm through all the different, whatever little permutations you like to practice on your instrument, the technical side of your instrument, you know, put that rhythm through all those permutations. Like that's really, um, that you, a lot of cool ideas come from that or, or like even like displacing a rhythm. So like if you play it and it's starting on beat one, like play the same thing, but start on the end of one and like, see what you get there. And you get these cool kind of like cohesive themes that are all based on the same rhythm. So that's, that's one. And I think another one for me is like, making maybe not the most recent album, but the one before it, the one called Heart Lake in 2019. I think like I really wanted to write music that was like, that I loved, but I, I might, maybe it was like stuff that I was listening to, but didn't really know how to play yet. So I think like, I remember, I definitely over the past few years have gone through these times of like taking an album, like, you know, some Stevie Wonder, some of his classic albums from like the seventies and like, just like, listening and, and learning as much of the harmony as I can, like trying to hear like every note in the chord that's happening, not just what you'd have in a lead sheet, but just like try to notice like 
what are all the notes that are happening and like figure that out on my instrument or like there's this other there's this uh, uh rapper named Saba who I like a lot who collaborates with these uh some some other like uh this this guy Daoud Anthony who's like a jazz musician who's one of the producers he works with you know he he has these albums these amazing harmonies so again just like I remember I spent a really long time just meticulously working through that entire album and just learning all the harmony on it that I could hear. And then that all of a sudden, like you go, it's, it's like really hard work, but it's fun because that was music I already loved. I just didn't know how to play it. And then like after studying it, then it's not like you have to shoehorn it into your new compositions, but it kind of like you spend that much time working on it. And then it organically is then something you might just draw on and incorporate to your own stuff. I think that's such a great tip. And, and a great example of, I think, I, you know, I definitely fall into this trap and I'm sure other people do too, but just because you're working on something, it doesn't mean you have to shoehorn it into what you're trying to do. I don't think that's always necessarily the best thing. I think the best thing is just work on it. And I'm, when I was taking lessons from Jake Jolliffe, he had a great point. He's like, we're working on this stuff now. Don't try to do this on a gig. Let it happen at a gig. He's like, yeah, you know, if you try to do what we're doing right now tonight at your gig, it's probably not going to happen the way you want it to. And it's going to throw everything off. You're going to be thinking too much. Just, totally. just let it happen. Totally. And like, so I feel like so much of music, I mean, is about being in the moment. And like, of course, we think about that when we're recording, we're on a stage because you literally can't afford to be thinking about anything else or you're going to mess up what you're trying to do. But, (laughs) you know, but but like practice too. like, I feel like the reason why we love to practice is it's just such a great way to just be in the moment, just be present. So I feel like if there's something that I love enough to practice, it's enough that thing be contained to my practice time. Like I don't need to rush that into my rush that into a performance or rush it into a jam session. Cause if I'm practicing it, it's cause it's really fun to practice right now. And then if you spend enough time practicing it in the right now, after a few months or a few years, it'll percolate. But, but yeah, I agree with that, that thing of like, you really can't, you can't force it or else it, it'll kind of be a little wooden or something. Do you have like a practice routine it's interesting. I mean, I think honestly, I feel like I used to be more structured and I used to have a lot more tension in my practice. And I think nowadays, I think I try a lot harder to like, well, first of all, only practice when I want to practice. Like if I, if I feel like I'm forcing it, I'm not going to sit down and practice because probably I need to eat or I need to go for a walk or I need to rest or do something else. But if I, so like, like I won't try to force practice if I'm not already thinking like it might be nice to practice. But I think too, like, I don't know, like when I sit down, if I'm going to be doing exercise type things or practicing arrangements in my hands, a lot of times I'll think like, I'll like stop and like notice kind of like what beat I'm already feeling and then I'll tap that into a metronome. So I'll be, I'll stay to the beat that it's like already kind of in mind or like that transcribing stuff. Like I mentioned the Stevie wonder thing, like, you know, anymore, I try not to, you know, there's so many albums that I'd love to have the knowledge they have, but I try to wait until there's an album that I already really deeply love. And maybe also really deeply know for, as a listener, before I start transcribing from it, like something about that just feels good. I think, I think when I was younger, it was more like, let's just be omnivorous and learn it all. But I guess, I guess I try to, um, as a practice thing, like really tap into like what kind of feels good right now, what feels kind of natural now. But then the other thing, I mean, I, I really am into, I really do love practicing technical stuff. And I think that, um, as far as an organization thing, I don't like write it down in a log usually, but I will like, at any given time, I might have like 
two or three or four kind of technical things that I'm working on. And basically anytime I practice, those are the two or three or four things that I'm going to spend time with in my practice. Um, and it's like, I'll try to be consistent with it. So like, if I was really into some pentatonic scale one day, I'm not just going to like abandon that and go to some new scale the next day. It's like, well, wait, like I was working on that thing. So like, I'll keep working on the one thing as long as it feels compelling to, to work on. And as soon as it stops feeling compelling and stops feeling fun, then I'll set it aside. But I find that usually the same things, the, the technical things, usually the same thing will feel compelling for, you know, usually a number of weeks at a time or maybe even a number of months at a time. But often like a lot of times if I travel or have some like impactful kind of like social experience, a lot of times in the wake of that, there's new things I want to practice. <laughs> but as long, but, if, I have a, but if, if I have a period of consistency, a lot of times I'll just keep on chipping away at, you know, that right hand thing or that pentatonic thing or that, you know, inversion thing. It just, it just kind of, each time I pick up the instrument, I'm just spending time exploring that thing. And it's kind of like, um, sort of like a slow learning, but it's like giving, giving, giving it, giving your body a chance to learn how to do the thing and giving, giving it a chance to kind of percolate into your subconscious a little bit. You've brought up pentatonics a couple times now. Um, and you also mention in, I think it's Tidewaters, the way I think Stevie Wonder harmonizes pentatonics was that yeah. in the notes. But obviously you're not, when you're talking about working on the pentatonic scale, you're not just saying like, oh, it's just the A minor pentatonic as, you know, from A to A. Um, it, when you when you say working on pentatonics, what are some things that you're working on? Because I think that would maybe relate to, you know, the mandolin as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so pentatonics, I mean, well, one thing, like why pentatonics in the first place, it's it's cohesive. So like you mentioned like A minor pentatonic, like when you when you first pick up an instrument and you learn that minor pentatonic scale, it's great because you're not going to hit a wrong note. They're all going to sound good. But I think like even when you get into more kind of like jazzy and like modern or like dissonant harmony, what's cool is that if you limit yourself to five notes, it's going to start sounding thematic and cohesive no matter how out those notes are. So like you know, um, a lot of times, like, like there's a pentatonic scale I've been working on recently, which is like, um, it's from the harmonic major scale family. And basically like, if you're playing over like a D seven chord, it would be, um, you don't actually play the D note, but you play the E flat note instead. So it's got that flat nine in it, but it doesn't have a D in it, but then it has, so it's got the flat nine, it's got the three, it's got the five, it's got the six and it's got the flat seven. So like, it's and and like that's it that's its own little pentatonic scale and it's like a little dissonant sounding but it's also so cohesive when when you just kind of explore it as its own little universe and then i mean that would be one example of like kind of like a like a weird pentatonic you could get into but you get familiar with enough with it that then when you use it it's not like you can make cohesive things out of it but i think to bring it back to like your example of like an a minor pentatonic like you know, when you first learn that on an instrument, you're going up the scale and back down again, or maybe you're going up through a couple octaves and back down, maybe down to the fifth and then back up again. But you can also do all your intervallic patterns with it, like, you know, skipping every other note ascending, you know, every other note descending. You can skip two notes at a time, skip three notes at a time, and you start to get these really cool, like, interval structures and chord suggestions and, um, you know, on the band, like on the mandolin, I'm sure there's all kinds of ways in which that might apply on the banjo because of our weird tuning with the open G tuning and the finger picks, like you can start, you move those, you get some like crazy interval, like say you're playing an A minor pentatonic, maybe you're using a shape of like, you know, A, 
um, well, I'll try to think of a shape a mandolin player could use. Let's say you're using like um, A, uh, G, and C, you know, and then kind of like move that up vertically on the neck. So like the A moves up to the next note on the scale, which would be a C, the G moves up to an A, and the C moves up to a D, and then maybe do some cool cross-picking pattern with that and kind of like get used to all your vertical inversions of a pentatonic scale and then dial in some really cool right hand rhythm with it and all of a sudden you've got this whole universe of sounds but every note is going to sound good because you're sourcing them from this pentatonic scale <laughs> sorry that's a lot of words about it no but it's not at stuff, all that's you know? what i love it <laughs> <laughs> i love that uh, do you have an album if you were to pick one like ah i think i'm gonna work on this one next is there already one that you have like lined up that you've that you're familiar with you know you talked about you like to pick an album that you've heard and listened to and are familiar with is there one that you're like it's getting close to time to tackle this one yeah it's interesting there there's an album that i i mean i've spent some time with this album already but it's a horace silver album the, the piano player um and it's horace silver and the jazz messengers um and uh it's just this like all original tunes of his and they're all just like really funky and cool like uh it's you know, I guess like I love jazz and uh, it's funny. It's going to sound like I'm saying something negative about the whole genre, but I'll just try to say it cohesively. I love jazz and I love music that's really accessible and really fun and playful. So I think a lot of times my some of my favorite jazz recordings are ones like this where like the tunes are all like super catchy and, the, and it's all like really groovy and like the solos are like they're not like super long. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with things that are, that are different than what I'm describing. I'm just describing something that kind of attracts me, but it's just like, it's super, yeah, I just like this album a lot. So that's one. Um, there's a, I don't know. I've been thinking about maybe like, you know, there's, there's different, all these, there's been all these new albums that have been coming out in 2023, like new compositions that, um, you know, people, a lot of like friends of mine have been writing. So like, I kind of like to start learning some of that stuff, you know, um, I'm sure that, I'm sure that a bunch of your listeners are, are checking out Ethan Satiwan's new album, but like, I was just listening to that one yesterday and, you know, that's one I need to listen to more cause I haven't lived with it for very long, but I mean, man, it'd be super fun to learn some of those tunes or, um, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know, um, in a few months I'm doing a few gigs with Joe and Grant Gordy and Dan Klingsberg on bass. And we're going to play some stuff from each of our new, cause Joe and Grant and I each have like an album that came out recently. So that'll be, I haven't started learning their tunes yet, but we're going to do a few tunes from each album, which I'm pretty excited about. Where are these tour dates going to be? Um, we're playing, I think just three dates. We're playing club Passim in, in Cambridge, mass. We're playing a thing called feast and field, which is like an outdoor, like sort of festival thing in central Vermont. And then we're playing at, um, uh, Don Sheldon's like, uh, thing in Ticonderoga. It's kind of like a house concert type situation, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited. Do you have the dates yet? Are these dates listed yet? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's July 5th through 7th. Yeah. You should come out, Dude. Come, come, come pick, come pick a tune if you make it out. Oh my gosh. Just, I would just be, uh, just as stoked to listen, <laughs> but man, <laughs> oh my goodness. What a man. Well, anybody who's in that area needs to go out and and, and secure tickets. That's, that's a great lineup. Wow. That's exciting. So that'll be fun. Oh, the other thing, I feel like I'm self-promoting now, but you were asking about what things to learn next. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I play with this band Zoe and Cloyd, which, uh, so Bennett Sullivan also plays banjo with them sometimes. And I've been playing banjo with them a lot recently and guitar sometimes with them, but, um, they are, they're coming out with an album that's coming out in May called songs of our grandfathers. Cause, 
John's grandfather was Jim Shoemate, who played with Flatten Scruggs, and and Natalia's grandfather um, was a klezmer musician. So they have klezmer and bluegrass on this album. So I've got a bunch of klezmer tunes to learn for some upcoming stuff with them. So that's that's what I guess I'll be shedding on coming up next. Yeah. So all right, let's uh, let's move into that now. How does that look for you? Now you have a bunch of tunes to learn. Like you know, like uh, you can pick any of these artists. So when you prepare for something like this. Do you kind of have a way that you like to go about it? Yeah, I think I think it would be listening a lot. I mean, it, I guess it depends, first of all, how familiar the thing is. So like the Klezmer thing, like I've listened to, you know, a fair amount of Klezmer. I've played a fair amount of Klezmer. And I feel like, uh, you know, I'm sure someone who knows more about the genre would disagree with me. But I feel like I feel like I, there, I kind of have a grasp on like the the types of chord progressions that happen. Cause it's, it's a little bit like, you know, in bluegrass, there's like the one, one, four, five, like Klezmer's kind of the similar, like four, five, one type progressions that happen a lot, you know? Um, so I guess some of that stuff would be more, I guess, like listen to the melody, get the melody in my head. And then, um, once the melody's in my head, learn it. Um, some of the stuff that's like, actually, I guess it's the same for all of them. Listen quite a lot first. Like, um, there's um this um uh so Billy Contreras actually came and played a concert at, at the college where I teach I teach at Warren Wilson College in Swanano, North Carolina. And we we had Billy come and give a, a workshop. He, he's this amazing, you know, jazz uh fiddle player and bluegrass and country fiddle player. But um he was giving a workshop and then he was also playing a concert. And for the concert, you know, we just had a budget to hire him. So he basically was playing with with some of us who were on faculty as his band. So he wouldn't, you know, it's like he, we're paying for him and we're, we're going to just be his band. So he sent us this like really challenging stuff to learn. <laughs> but the, for me, the whole thing was like, let me just listen to this music a whole lot, like before I even try to learn it. And then that kind of makes it easier to learn. And it also makes it like maybe just a little more like when you're finally playing those notes, you're actually expressing something cause you've, you've heard it, you know, whereas if you try to learn it before you've listened very much, it's like, it's almost like reciting a language where you don't know what the words mean. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's And he sent this really challenging music. <laughs> that's great. Oh my gosh. So what is, what is some advice, you know, you've, you're influenced by a lot of the same sort of players that I am and that a lot of people, you know, like, you know, uh, Marshall and Dog and Statman, Joe, Thiele, Flinner. I mean, what are some things that you that you think mandolin players could work on that you see, you know, you probably see all sorts of levels, but what's something you think that could help them out kind of gearing this towards the 10 minute a day idea that I that I always kind of ask about. But, you know, what's something that you see that people always could be better at maybe would be a better way to phrase it. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest things are listening these are all related to each other listening relaxing rhythm and tone i know that's four things that's kind of hard to hold all <laughs> mine at once but to, i guess i guess what i'm getting at here is that if you're listening you almost have to like relax your body to like just like chill for a second let go of some of the internal monologue and just pay attention to what you're hearing and as soon as you can do that, you're going to have a much better chance of playing with really good rhythm because you're listening to it and you're going to sync up rhythmically, whether it's to your metronome or who you're playing with. So I feel like, I mean, for me, practicing with the metronome is also just a way for me to relax, like physiologically. It's like a relaxing activity because I have to like chill and listen to that metronome and sync up with it. Um, and then I feel like along with that listening and relaxing thing is like, you know, 
listening to the the tone you're producing like is it is it a nice sound if not like well what adjustment do i have to make maybe i have to slow down maybe i have to not try to play something maybe i'm thinking really hard about the notes that i'm playing or the chords that i'm playing so maybe let's practice something where i don't have to think quite as hard so i can have a little more mental bandwidth to listen and then i remember hearing bela fleck or reading in some old banjo newsletter interview that for him talking about like pick noise he was saying that like it's just kind of like he like wills himself to have less pick noise <laughs> and which I think is so cool. But what I, what I interpret that is, is like, if you listen to yourself and you notice like, is there pick noise and then just keep listening and keep listening and keep listening, like automatically you're giving yourself a chance to like develop a feedback loop where probably just subconsciously you're going to change your technique to reduce the pick noise. So, yeah, I mean, I think that would be my big advice. Just like remembering like, I mean, if you're playing with other people, listening is going to be the most important thing. If you're playing with other people, rhythm is going to be, you know, like the most important, the uh, most important thing and, and the tone. So I guess that would be the, that's, that's, that, that's the stuff I tell myself anyway. And that would be the advice I'd share with others as well. Yeah, that's great advice. And, and you, you played with some greats. So I think it's, uh, it's also, um, coming from a, from expertise <laughs> and experience. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I'll say too, I'll say too, I mean, you're, you're mentioning all those mandolin players that we both love. I mean, I, I know like, um, you know, um, different mandolin players who I play with, like, you know, it's like, it's such a joy to play with people who like, who, who bring those things to the table. Like I'm thinking about, um, like I did a CD release party recently in Black Mountain and David Benedict was playing mandolin on the gig. And um, man, like what a pro he is, you know, just so, so solid. Like, you know, the, just just everything just so dialed in and just it's such a pleasure to play with someone who is just like, who just kind of like has the, who's laying down such a solid foundation. So I feel like too, as a musician, a lot of times we get in this headspace of like, what do I have to express or how am I going to like impress people? But man, just, just having a solid foundation is like, I mean, I'm thinking of some of the, like you mentioned Nick Falk, the drummer on my album, or, or I'm thinking of Dominic Leslie as another musician or, or David Benedict, where like, they're just like unbelievably solid to such a degree that even if they didn't do anything fancy, just being as solid as they are would make them just total top tier musicians. So that's, that's just like a, a, a thing I appreciate anyway. Yeah. Oh, David's so good, man. I mean, talk about, yeah. and just a hard worker. Uh, he's, he's been good for as long as I've ever listened to him and he works so hard. It's, it's, in, it's inspiring to watch a guy who's already really great, <laughs> continually challenge himself to get better and better. That's, that's awesome. And it's so inspiring too how how I guess he and Tabitha engineered that that album they just did that recent Foreign Landers album and it just sounds gorgeous. I mean that's inspiring too. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, God, that guy hardest working hardest working mandolin player in the world. <laughs> 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 well, man, and then the uh, the final question: Do you have a favorite beer? A favorite beer? So I'm going to be a disappointing guest. I don't really drink much beer, but um, but I do have a hot tip here for people who like sweets. Um, ginger beer like really spicy ginger beer with vanilla ice cream is a killer is a killer uh, float like ice cream float so that's my beer my beer related tip <laughs> oh that's great casey campbell if you're listening he's also he was also the ginger beer guy uh for oh, an nice. episode yeah so that that's great man that actually sounds really really delicious yeah like if you can get like the extra like spicy one with that vanilla ice cream so good 
Well, Ben, thank you for doing this. The new album, it's Hidden Animals. It's on Ataropa. I think I'm saying that right. At- Ataropa? Yeah, Ataropa. Ataropa. Uh, the great Joe Brent uh, had him on recently. It's it's such a great album and a great listen. I highly recommend people go out and listen to it. Congratulations on a just a, a beautiful work of art that you put out in the world. And I, I know how hard it is to do. So um, I, I encourage people to go out there and pick it up and enjoy it. Man, thank you so much. It really, really means a lot to have people listen to it. So thanks so much for checking it out. Absolutely. And thank you for doing the podcast, Ben. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I mean, I, you know, I, I was telling you before just what a fan I am of the show. So yeah, thanks so much for having, thanks so much for having a, a banjo player on. Absolutely. Now I got to send Keith a text and be like, Hey man, just, just we're cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I love Keith and picky fingers. Go listen to picky fingers as well, everybody. All right. Thanks so much to Ben for doing the podcast. There's some great stuff in there, some great dog stories and just some great musical advice. Go out and check out Ben's brand new album and uh, everybody have a fantastic week and weekend. Cheers, everybody.